All right, I'm not used to that. Usually at my church, they play a really cheesy song for me when I'm walking up, and it embarrasses me. Um, so thank you, Katie, for not doing that to me. Um, hey, I'm really excited to be here. Vivek is indeed actually maybe my favorite human being on the planet. Um, we're not recording this, are we? My wife would not like that. <laughs> she, um, uh, I love your church. You guys, for some reason, keep asking me to come and speak at things, and I don't know why, but I love you for it. I love your staff. I love your pastors, um, your church. We've watched you guys from afar. We've had meetings with your pastors. We steal all of your good ideas and use them in Kent, and I just have a ton of respect and admiration for the leadership of this church. So it's a privilege to be here. Um, I am married to Tiffany. She's amazing. We've been married 12 years. We have four kids. Um, I don't know how that happened, but we have four kids. Uh, their names are Mason, Phoebe, Naomi, and Nora. Eight, six, almost three, and seven months old. And our seven-month-old just started crawling today. Like an hour before I left my house to drive here. Um, and so that's pretty cool. Um, I have a question that's going to sort of frame our time. And the question is, who do you think you are? And has, just show of hands, has, has anyone, like, had somebody ask them that question, like, with a certain tone to it? <laughs> like, who do you think you are? Um, that question is, I, I was trying to think about my own life, and I was like, I, I don't think anyone has ever actually said it to me like that. But there's this one distinct instance in my life where someone should have said it to me. And I'd like to share that story with you. So um, Phoebe, our second child, is six years old. And when my wife was pregnant with her, um, there was this thing going around called the uh, H1N1 flu. You guys remember that? You were probably like in middle school, most of you, <laughs> um, or high school or something. And uh, so the deal was it was really scary. And like pregnant women especially were like the first ones to get the vaccination but there wasn't a lot of vaccinations. And so there was this whole order that you had to follow. And if you were the dad or lived in the home of a newborn, then you like jumped high onto the list, like the same as a pregnant woman um, and the elderly and kids and stuff. And so here I am, I have a pregnant wife who is like one of the first in line to get the vaccine and then there's me, and I'm like, well, wait a second. I'm, like, way at the bottom of the list, but if I get it, I know she's going to be vaccinated, but then we, I have this boy who's, like, two years old. I don't want him to get it, so I made up my mind that I was going to go get the vaccine. And so here I am. Like, this is around just for perspective's sake, and feel free, as I'm going to share for the next few minutes, to judge me. Please do, because of what I'm about to tell you. Um, yeah, so about this time, I was getting recognized, ordained as a, pa as a pastor. <laughs> this is so bad. So I decide I'm going to go get this shot, and I'm going to have to lie to get it. But I felt like I was doing the right thing to protect my family, to protect my young two-year-old son, Mason. So it's crazy. Everyone wants this shot. And so I go to the Portage County Health Department, and the line is just like weaving back and forth through the parking lot. Literally 500 or more people are in line to get the vaccine. I'm there illegally. 
okay? I don't, I'm not, I don't qualify to get the vaccine. And so I'm standing there, and I'm feeling at that moment like pretty righteous. I'm doing this again. I'm doing this to protect my family. And then there's this woman who's about in her 60s who's standing next to me, and she's starting to look at me like, you're not supposed to be here. You're not, you're like, you're not, you're not in the categories. Why are you here? But she's really kind about it. And she says, what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? What do you do? How do I answer that? And I'm like, I do campus ministry at Kent State because I can't lie about that, right? And so um, she's like, eventually, like four or five questions in, she's like, why are you here? And I was like, well, and here we go. This is how it happens, folks. My wife just had a baby. Not true. Not true. Oh, really? Your, your wife just had a baby. Cool. Was it a boy or girl? Um, a boy, I think. Uh, yeah, it was a boy. Okay, what'd you guys name him? Uh, Tate? <laughs> That's just what came out. It was like one of the names that we thought about for like two seconds and then threw out. Um, no offense to anyone named Tate here. It's a cool <laughs> name. It's a great name. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, and then she goes on. She's like, how much did he weigh? And how was your wife's delivery? And I'm just like, is this like a, an, some sort of angel from God sent to like just drop me to my knees in repentance? Um, and I just felt like if I would have been honest, which full disclosure, I wasn't. Um, and all of my credibility has now just vanished. I know. Um, she would have looked me in the eyes and said, who do you think you are? Right? And so, again, I, I think about, that's kind of a silly story, but it's a question that I think we all wrestle with. And I love this theme of above the noise because there is a ton of noise in our lives. Noise from the outside, noise from the inside. We tweet, we post, we Insta, we Snapchat, we do all this kind of stuff, right? We crave a response. We want a like. I think increasingly we want our phones to tell us that we matter. We want our phones to tell us that, that we belong, that we're worthy. And it's not just our own noise, but it's the noise that comes from the outside relentlessly. We hear and we internalize the words of other people, what they say to us and what they say about us. And we see the world through this lens of our own identity. We go looking for the answer to this question, who am I? We go looking for it everywhere, and it seems like everyone and everything has an answer. And so above all of that noise, the question remains, who am I? And who do I think that I am? Who gets to decide that? Really, who gets to decide who am I? And where is God in the midst of all of that? He calls us upward to worship, to root our identity in relation to him. Can we hear him? Do we hear him above all of that noise? And we're going to meet a guy in Mark chapter 10 here that Jesus interacts with that I think was wrestling with this question. A guy that did not know who he really was. But he thought he did. He thought he knew who he was, but he didn't. So turn with me to Mark 10. If you have Bibles, if not, I'm sure it'll be up there. Mark 10 Verse 17. It's 
starts with, and as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we'll stop there. Luke tells us in his gospel account of this same story that this guy is a ruler. He's most likely a synagogue ruler, which means that he's, he has spiritual and religious influence. And he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him in public as a synagogue ruler. He takes this posture of humility. He bows low. He ranks himself under Jesus in that moment. It's this portrait of humility. I want to learn from you. And a portrait of expectancy. You have something that I want, and I believe that you will give it to me. And it all looks good on the outside, right? It's the right guy asking the right person the right question. He's the right guy, right, because he's a synagogue ruler. Who better to encounter Jesus than a guy with spiritual influence? This is the guy, like, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, this is the guy that I want to meet. If I can touch this guy's life and influence him, he's gonna, it's going to spread. He's the right guy asking the right person, Jesus. I don't need to explain that one to, to you guys, I don't think. Jesus is the right person always. The right question, how do I get eternal life? It's a fantastic question, right? He's asking about eternal life. But if it's possible to do this, I think he asks the exact right question and the wrong question at the same time. He's asking the right question and the wrong question at the exact same time. It's the right question because he's asking right about eternal life, which is a question about how should I live? And that matters. Do you think about that? Do the people on our campuses wrestle with that question? How should I be living my life? And for those of us in the church, eternal life is not just what we get when we breathe our last breath. Eternal life is now. Eternal life starts now. It's a great question. But it's also the wrong question for this guy because it reveals that this guy has an entirely different worldview, an entirely different starting point than the gospel. What, what rules his life, what drives his mind and his heart runs absolutely contrary to the gospel. And Jesus sees what we cannot see, a man who does not know who he is. He is assigning himself an identity that he cannot have. He thinks that he is capable by himself to save himself. Right? He says, Jesus, tell me what I got to do. Just, just give me the list and I'll go and do it. I can achieve eternal life. I can do that. I can work myself into righteousness before the holy God. I don't have to love God. I can just appease God, right? I don't have to love him. I just have to do what he tells me to do. Spoiler alert, nobody achieves eternal life. Nobody. We receive it as a gift. It's always a gift. We can't earn it. And a lot of us try, people outside the church, people inside the church, 
And, and I think about this guy and his life. He probably on the outside was so externally righteous. Nobody in his day would have looked at him and thought him to be a sinner. No one would have looked at him and thought this guy was far from God. And yet his entire, the lens through which he saw everything ran so contrary to the gospel. It makes me think, there is a way to live our lives that on the outside it looks so externally clean, so neat and tidy, and yet God is strangely absent. And this is, this is something I pray for myself. I pray it for my kids who are growing up as the, the, a pastor's kid, who are just sort of so just in the church world. I pray this for them, that this would not become their reality. There's a way that you can live a life full of striving and working to keep a God happy that you don't actually know. Amen? It's possible. And then there's a way, a way that God has always cherished, a way that God loves of just walking with him even amongst our failures and our sin and our brokenness and our screwing it up and our doing the same things over and over again that we know we shouldn't be doing. But asking him to be with us in it. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When Jesus asks a question, we should always take notice. When he, when he answers a question with a question, we should really dial in because something good is about to happen. The questions that Jesus asks, they, they, they get to the deepest realities of life. They speak to our hearts. They shape us and they even set the trajectory of our lives. So when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What he's really saying is, who do you think you are? Here we are. We're back to that question. Who do you think you are? He is saying, and I don't think he's saying it in a shame, shaming way. I really don't. Everything else that I know about the God of the Bible and even what we're going to see Jesus do later in this passage would tell us that Jesus doesn't say it like, who do you think you are? He probably says it a little bit more like, so tell me, who do you think that you are? That's just how I imagine it at least. It's his way of saying like, who do you think you are? Only God is good. And you're not God. Did, did you know that? You're not God. I actually am. Nice to meet you. But you can't do what I'm going to do. Only I can give away salvation. Only I can live the perfect life. Only I will go to the cross. Salvation belongs to me. And I give it to a, as a gift to whoever comes to me. You don't earn it. So the question is misguided, but Jesus still answers it. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And I read this. And those of you budding Bible scholars, theologians in the room probably think the same thing, right? Did Jesus just forget the gospel? What is he doing why does he answer that question by rattling off a whole bunch of commands? Right? 
He is using the law in the way, the primary way that it was meant to function for God's people throughout all of history. The law is a mirror, and it reveals all of our blemishes. It reveals all of, the, uh, all of our faults. We see just how broken our lives are when we see the law. It's meant to give us an accurate view, right? It, it reveals that even though we are made in the image of God and we are, inc- we are capable of good, we're, inc- we're capable of sometimes even incredible good at the same time, that mirror, that's our lives, that's supposed to reflect back God and his glory and his perfection, it's all shattered. And on those shattered parts of that mirror is the sin and the brokenness of our lives. The law reveals the depth of our need for God. Right? Even our righteous acts and our attempts at good are so often intertwined with things that are impure. We do good so that people see us. Right? We do that so we get notice. We do that because it makes us feel more righteous than the person next to us. And only God sees that stuff. Only God knows just how broken we are. I read this, and this thought just goes through my mind as I look at this guy, this rich young ruler, and I think maybe what's more heinous to God than blatant rebellion is the person that lives their life squeaky clean on the outside and yet in their heart of hearts believes that they save themselves, that they don't need God. Verse 20, and he said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Seriously, dude? Really? This, he thinks that he has kept the law since he was a kid. This guy doesn't know who he is. The most shocking part, this is the shocking part of the story, but it's going to get even more shocking in just a second. This guy says, from my youth, he is claiming to have never, ever, 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 ever broken the law. That's what he's saying. I have kids. I have youth. I see their their pure, their innocent desire to be obedient, and I see their scheming and their manipulating and their blatant rebellion. Our two-and-a-half-year-old Naomi, I just loved. I, I told Tiffany before we even had kids, I said, I hope we have a kid that's just super rebellious. Um, because I don't want to just raise these these ministry leader kids that follow all the rules and, you know, all I have to do is just barely raise my voice and they just shudder and cry and say, I'm so sorry, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I want a kid who just looks us in the eyes and just doesn't do what we tell him to do. (laughs) And our first two kids, classic pastor's kids, I have to raise my voice one decibel level and they stop doing what they're doing. Now, I have to do that all the time. So don't think that my children are saints. Um, but Naomi, oh my goodness, Naomi. She just loves to disobey. And she will just look at us. So um, she's in the middle of potty training. And she's made it very clear that she knows how to go on the potty. And so there are times where I will look at her, 
this is like within the last week, and I'll say, Nene, that's what I call her, with Nene, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and I'll say, hey, let's go on the potty. And she'll, this is, I'm not making this stuff up. She'll look at me, she'll kind of spread her legs out a little bit, and her eyes will start to water. She just peed, just right then and there, just... <laughs> I know how to go. She's proven it. She's been doing it for weeks. I, I don't know what I'm talking about now. Um, so this guy is totally misguided. He does not know who he is. He thinks that he has kept the law since he was in diapers. Now the next verse is even more shocking than what he said. The first half of verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do you know what I want that to read in my self-righteous heart, in my prideful heart, in my arrogant self? Here's what I want that passage to say. And Jesus, looking at him, was repulsed. And Jesus, looking at him, grabbed him by the throat and said, how dare you, you arrogant, self-righteous, word I can't say right here. <laughs> you should know better. And he should. He's a synagogue leader. If nothing else, he has read the Psalms. He knows what David said. In sin did my mother conceive me. He probably had it memorized he should know better. And yet Jesus in that moment shocks me. He loves him. This is the shocking grace of God that even in our most self-righteous moments when we try to defend ourselves, when we believe that we're doing this all on our own and we convince ourselves that we don't actually need God, even then he is patient with us and he looks upon us with sweet, transforming love. That grace alone is our hope. That grace alone is our hope. You can choose to live by your performance like this guy was trying to live. Because that's what he's hoping to hear, right? Just tell me what to do. I'll go out and I'll perform it and I'll do it. You can choose to live that way. It will always end in two things. Either conceit, arrogance, pride, or in despair. Right? Because if you do it, for a little while at least, you're going to think you're doing it on your own. And you'll become one of those people, one of those Christians that nobody wants to be around. You know that? When we act that way, self-righteous, nobody wants to be around us. Or you end up in despair because you realize you can't do it. And you think, I'm a nobody, I'm worthless, I'm a throwaway. God could never love me. Nobody could ever love me if they knew what I was really like. But there's another way. Grace. Grace invites us to live an entirely different way, to embrace an entirely new identity. And Jesus is about to invite this guy into this way. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus knows 
This man's problem is not his performance. His problem is his worship. I think this guy gets it. I think he's starting to get what Jesus is saying. He's piecing it together. That it's not about him just following rules. It's not about him appeasing God. I think he's starting to get it. That it's about Jesus. It's about God. And that he has to love God more than he loves anything else. And he looks at that and he says, no, I don't want that. And so he walks away. This really simple idea, guys, that we worship what we love. You know that? It's, I love theology. I love reading books. I, I, I dream someday of teaching at a seminary. I love all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's really simple. We worship what we love most. And when Jesus looked at this guy, he saw that his heart was dominated by a different love. Right? This guy loves his wealth, his possessions, the social status that that would give him, the prestige, the honor that that would give him. His heart is ruled by something else. He bows to something else. His identity is rooted in his status, his wealth, his prestige. He can't imagine living without that stuff. He can't imagine that if I, if I walked away from that stuff, we're right back to identity. Who am I? He just can't imagine it. I think he would say, without that stuff, I don't know who I am. I'm nothing. Guys, sin is ultimately about what rules our hearts. It's ultimately about what rules our hearts. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know we want to run to that passage about the camel going through the eye of the needle. But did you see what happened between verses 23 and 24? Sandwiched in between two passages that have to do with wealth, Jesus does something. Right? It goes, it goes from how difficult it will be for the rich to just how difficult. You see what he's doing? He's broadening it. He, he broadens it to the level that every single one of us is now afflicted by this passage. It's like he is saying how difficult it is for anyone who bows to any other God. To enter the kingdom. You don't come to the kingdom with your idols. You don't come to my kingdom carrying with you a bunch of stuff that you hold with a death grip that you won't get rid of. We read this passage, right, and we're like, is this, this passage is about money, right? Kind of. Sort of in a little bit of a way. It's more about those things that capture our hearts those things that we bow down to, that we worship, that we root our identity in, those things that we say, without this, I can't live. Without this, I don't know who I am. 
anything can become our God. Anything can become an idol. For this guy, it was his wealth. I want to ask you, what is it for you? I mean, honestly, as you sit here and you, you, you see what Jesus is saying and, and how he's interacting with this guy, I wonder if there's even things stirring in your own heart and mind right now. What is it for you? What rules your heart? What gives you your identity? What drives your passions? What sets the trajectory of your lives? Or maybe one way to put it is, what would make you sad? Walk away sad if Jesus asked you for it. Put yourself in that scene. What would Jesus say to you? Because he will ask for it. He will ask for it. it. It's impossible, right? The camel and the needle, right? You know, a camel is about this big. The eye of a needle is about that big. Why is, why is it's impossible, right? Why? It's impossible because only if you treasure Jesus more than anything else can you enter the kingdom. Verses 26 and 27, and they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Something else will rule our lives until God fixes our eyes on Jesus. You know what happens when we see Jesus? When we, we behold the wonder and the majesty of the incarnate God coming to live among us, putting on flesh and bones, wearing skin, and walking on the earth, and teaching, and preaching, and healing, and dying, and rising again. You know what happens when you see that? Matthew 13, 44. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. Treasure. Treasure. Go sell all that you have, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had so he could buy that field. Why did he buy the field? To get the treasure. What's the treasure? Jesus. That's what happens when we behold Jesus, when God fixes our eyes on Jesus. It's impossible. Right? It's impossible. It's the camel going through the eye of the needle because it's only Jesus. Only those who have surrendered everything to him and those who have let their small, petty, worldly desires be swallowed up by their desire for him. And when Jesus is our treasure, we throw off all the idols who claim to tell us who we are. We run away from the things that we know in the end will not satisfy us. And we exchange our I don't think I can live without this thing for I can't live without Jesus. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? A child of the most high God, made for glory, made to bear his image and to know him and to walk with him tragically, tragically flawed broken, desperate for salvation, 
fatally flawed, trapped in sin, restlessly searching for an identity, craving life, abundant life, making a God out of anything that will tell you the deepest things that you want to hear about yourself. And the object of God's unrelenting affection. Someone who died and rose to transform Someone worth the shedding of his blood. Someone that he loves to forgive over and over and over again. Someone he defends. Someone he fights for. Someone he refuses to let evil snatch out of his hands. Someone he chooses. Someone he invites to come sit at my table. Someone who brings him joy. Someone he has made to reflect his goodness back to this world, someone he gives his power and his compassion to, someone who will one day see him face to face and enjoy him forever, a son of the most high God, a daughter of the king of the universe. When we get that and when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we refuse to let anything else define us. We refuse to settle for an identity less than that. We throw off everything else that we've made into a God in our lives, and we run furiously toward him. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give us some time now to just sit and think about this passage, to, to put ourselves in that story to imagine ourselves, even if it helps you, running up to Jesus and asking him this question and hearing him tell you, here's the thing. Here's what I'm asking you to surrender. This is what I want you to give to me. So I have three questions. I think they're going to be up on the screen. I'm not exactly sure. And I'm going to give you guys about 10 to 15 minutes here to wrestle with these three questions. What would Jesus ask you to surrender? What do you treasure more than him? And who or what tells you who you are? Think about those things that we would say, without this thing, if, if I didn't have this thing, I don't know who I would be. And so I want you to grab a sheet of paper. And I'm going to let you, you can walk outside if you want. You can stay in here if you want. But I, I need you to grab like a little sheet of paper. I think they're in the back, right? Yes, there, there's tables in the back and there's sheets of paper. And I want to challenge you to write those things down, to name them. And I know that that's risky and I know that that requires boldness. But I would ask you to, to, to do it, to see it as an opportunity to come to Jesus, to hear from him hear him beckoning you to surrender those things and lay them down. So I'm going to pray for us now, and then I would ask that when I'm done praying that we would just silently just kind of move about, grab the sheets of paper, go outside if you want, come back to your seat, but try to do it really quietly. And then again, we'll spend 10 or 15 minutes just meeting with God, asking him to reveal our hearts. And then as he does, to write those things down, okay? All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that in these next few moments that you would speak to each and every one of us in this room. Lord, we acknowledge that, that 
there are things that have crept onto the throne of our hearts, th- things that have somehow ended up in the place that is reserved only for you. We ask that even in these next few moments that we would experience your grace and your mercy and your kindness. It's your kindness, God, that leads us to repentance. God, would you, would you name those things for us? Would we be obedient to write them down? Would we experience your grace, your patience, your love? All right, guys, we are going to move now into a time of communion and prayer. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So this amazing thing is happening in communion. We're both looking backward and we're looking forward. We're looking backward to the cross. And we're remembering that our God came to save us. He came to suffer and to die for us. And he went silently to the cross. And we remember that he and he alone has won our salvation for us. But we also look forward to the day when we will see him face to face, when he will return victoriously and will make the world right forever. And so here's, here's what I want you to do as, as you go to the back. We have, I think, four or five stations for communion. There's one that's gluten-free. I want you to, to take a moment and just thank Jesus for what he did for you. And as you come forward to take communion, I, I want you to take the little sheet of paper that you wrote your stuff on. Can I share with you mine? Here's mine my comfort. I just want life to be easy, God. I want financial comfort. I want relational comfort. I want ministry comfort. I want everything in my life to be easy. And I sense them just lay it down. My pride. I I just, I want to be praised. I want to be recognized. I want it to be about me. Lay it down. My fear. God, don't ask me to do something I don't want to do. So whatever that is, for you. I I pray that that was a meaningful time for you, that you have something written on that sheet of paper. And so as you come forward to take communion, remembering what Jesus has done for you, I I ask you to to drop these in. There's like these little troughs. That's that's too big. Little uh, things full of water, buckets full of water. And when you you drop it in there, something kind of cool is going to happen, I think. I hope. It's going to disappear. The sheet of paper is going to dissolve in that water. And it's a way for us to to throw those things down at the foot of the cross and to surrender them and to say that, God, I need your help. I can't do this in my own power. But what I'm saying to you is that it is my desire that this 
thing, that these things not rule my life anymore. And I love that we're doing that, that we're, we're dropping that in the water and then we're taking communion because in communion we're declaring that it's only by God's power that this will happen. It's only when we fix our eyes on Jesus that we let go of all of those idols. It's only his power that rose Jesus from the grave that will cause us to live differently. We're saying, I'm desperate for you to heal me. I can't do it alone. It's only by your power. So I want to say this too. If you've never before surrendered your life to Jesus and you sense God is stirring something in you, why wait? I would just plead with you to talk to someone. We're actually going to have staff in the back of the room back there, and the staff are here to pray for you. If, if you are someone who maybe you don't even know how you got here, but you're here and you sense God is doing something, would you go and would you ask to be prayed for? Would you share that with someone? Or if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you realize that these other things have crept onto the throne and you want to cast them down and you want to run furiously after Jesus again, and you need prayer, and you want to just vocalize and verbalize those things that you wrote on, that, on your paper and to be prayed for, the staff are here. They, they want to pray with you. I pray that tonight that we would we'd push back the darkness that's crept into our lives, that we would make so, so much of Jesus, that our singing even now would be an offering to this God of ours who sacrificed, died and rose again for us and a recognition that he wants to meet with every single one of us here. So would we just sing our guts out in praise for him, for who he is and what he's done. So I think we're doing two, three songs anytime in that. Go back, take communion, drop your sheet of paper in. If you want to be prayed for, the staff are going to be in the back for you, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that, that you want to visit with us here now, that you are not far off, that you draw near. Lord, would each of us encounter you now? Would we hear you calling us back to yourself? Would we run? Would we run like the prodigal son back to you and experience your crazy love and affection for us. You are our hope. Your grace is our hope. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.